You know, the ease with which you try to lie to me is a little appalling. I just want to put that out there. Do you mean I try to lie with ease or... The ease with which you, personally, make an effort to lie to me is appalling. Hmm. By which I mean I am appalled by it. I've missed this, Joe. We've been gone for a couple weeks. This is... <laughs> I've, you know, it's been tough. It has I've, been. You know, I, fi- I found myself, you know, I was with family, uh, had a little break, um, had a 24-hour drive each way. Yeah, that sounds kind of rough, but... Oh, but we got to stay with some excellent people. Some, and that's some, some of my favorite great. people we got to stay with, yeah. including friends of the show. Yeah. Not going not to drop names here. No? Okay. Um, that's what makes it wonderful. You got to see friends. Uh, non-listener Alana. I'm not going to drop any more names, but you know. People know who, who you're talking about. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, we, had, a, we had a great time. Yay. Um, but I did find myself, you know, just feeling a little bit wistful. You had a hankering? Why, why is there no one around who's complaining about the amount of time that it takes to, to establish the right levels to record? Yeah. Because I was not invited on the trip, right. that's why. why. Why is someone not here having just arrived and complaining that the coffee isn't already ready? Yeah. Yeah. So no one was willing to berate you about your general oh, slowness? Oh, don't don't get me wrong. There, There's always a long line of people willing to berate me. I would think so. Oh, especially on a family trip. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, if there wasn't, they're not doing it right, as far as <laughs> no, I'm I was, concerned. You don't have to worry about that. Okay. In your stead, there were plenty of people to, to berate me. Hur- hooray. Uh, how do we want to start this thing, Joe? This is a, a big show. This is our we're, we're coming it's a, back. It's a jumbo show. We're not going to have another week off, probably for probably a hundred more episodes. Probably, yeah. Uh, let can we start with feedback? Uh, that is how you customarily <laughs> like to begin. Yeah, and we should tell the listeners here that you want to put feedback at the end. I do. I think feedback is a great way to wrap up an episode. It's a special sort of. Uh, it's a special thing for the the true the tried and true listeners, the real fans. They know that at the end of the episode, they'll get uh, these great mentions that of people that we think are great. That we love getting this feedback. We really do enjoy it. We think about it. We talk about it uh, about the things that are in these emails. Um, and putting it at the end of the show means that people who aren't diehard fans can just jump right into the substance. So I think putting the feedback at the close of the show uh, is the, really the perfect place for it. Nope. So let's go into feedback. Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, boy, this is the one time I wish... Well, one of the times I wish... It's kind of wish we had a little bit of video. <laughs> Even though I, I, I don't otherwise wish we had video. Yeah. No, I'm, I think um, video free is the way for us to go. No, so if you don't want to hear the feedback, of course you can skip over it. Use your thirty second skip button or whatever you have on your on your podcast app. Sure, sure. Your Overcast came out while we were away. I, I did hear that. In fact, I, I'm an Overcast user. Yeah, uh, and uh, one of the things you can do in Overcast is you can set the duration of your skip ahead button, and I moved mine to sixty seconds. Whoa! Instead of thirty seconds. Yeah. So. Overcast, is, I'm enjoying it. Our I mean, listeners may want to implement a 15-minute skip button. <laughs> <laughs> and they might just want to skip the whole episode. One bit of feedback I got on the road, actually, was uh, yeah, our podcasts are too long. Our shows are too long, someone mm, said. This, you got on the road meaning while you were while visiting with friends. Yeah, visiting with people. One so of, one of these so-called friends. Yeah, exactly. One of these purported friends. Yeah. This person's not going to be listening, obviously. Whatever. 
what what a great person this is too. The person who said this, really, yeah, it, it hurt me right 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 here, Joe, mm. pointing to my heart right now. Yeah. So, listener Michelle emailed in and wanted a link to, and she'd heard it originally, but wanted a link back to the show in which we talked about leveling up in the law. Uh, the idea that when you're first learning law, especially as a law student, you come into it thinking one thing and you quickly learn something else about it. You kind of gain experience. You, you understand the questions are different than you'd thought when you came in. And, right. and, and that process continues as you gain experience in the law. And so I use this like metaphor about leveling up. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that's episode eight. I think it's productive thoughtlessness, but we'll put a link in the show notes. Um, and then you have a new blog post about this too, right? Yeah, because it's a part of this longer work that I'm working on now. And I have a section, um, a very rough draft, rough draftish section about leveling up in the law, which is a part of this broader theory. And so I just plunked it out and put it up on my blog and pointed it out and sent a link to it to Michelle. So thanks, Michelle, for getting me to think about that again. And, yeah. and I thought it made for, a, you know, at least a decent uh, blog post. And yeah. people might want to check that out. Uh, we got more feedback. Oh, we got one thing you want to talk about later, right? This is about the uh, the, the monkey selfie. Yes, I think we should do that last in follow-up. This is from listener Jim on Twitter who, who tweeted us. And uh, so we'll talk about this after we talk about today's topic. Is that right? Uh, we can do that. Yeah, let's, let's let's make that a little gift to the listeners who, who uh, you know, they, they, where they're going to go through our main topic today, right. which is, can I spill the beans on that? Oh, sure, sure. Joe's favorite case is... <laughs> Plural. Yeah. Decided on the same day, though. They were. Yeah. So we did last, last episode was my favorite case. This episode is going to be your favorite case is super interesting. But after we finish talking about that, we'll talk for a few minutes about this... Uh, uh, monkey selfie. The monkey selfie. Such a great picture. Much in the news. Yeah, much in the news. It's. Uh, uh, d- does the monkey own the rights to uh, his own or her own photograph? Shall I give a spoiler? Yeah, go please. Hell no. <laughs> okay, what's the follow up that we're gonna? Okay, so we've got uh, one email uh, from listener Sam, um, who who says that we should talk about Marbury versus Madison at some point. Yeah. Interested in talking about, you know, the, the foundational case which establishes the Supreme Court's uh, power of judicial review, the bo- the power to strike down congressional statutes. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, judicial and, review, uh, uh, that's the what people usually mean by that phrase. Yeah, uh, I think it could be an interesting topic. And we, we need to get be. the right guest on there to, to maybe give it an interesting twist or to um, right. uh, to talk about it a little bit more deeply than you and I might otherwise. A second thing that uh, listener Sam emailed about was... Uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren wanted to know, uh, or, or maybe wanted to hear about our thoughts, and maybe others' thoughts about how he transitioned from his maybe the earlier parts of his career. In fact, he says responsible for, in part, for the uh, Japanese internment camps to becoming the Chief Justice of what he says is one of the most liberal Supreme Court uh, Supreme Courts in in history. There is a terrific biography of Earl Warren that was written, you know, it might be ten years ago now maybe eight years ago. I'll, I'll, I'll send you a link to it so we can put it in the show notes. Boom, it's there. Uh, but there is uh, a really terrific biography. Um, I, I, I read it, enjoyed it thoroughly, learned a ton. Um, and uh, Earl Warren is such an interesting figure. Uh, my recollection is that when he was elected governor of California, uh, he was elected as both the Republican and the Democratic nominee. Uh, so he was he was a person of enormous popularity, uh, enormous political 
acumen yeah um and uh and policy accomplishment uh, and you know sort of zelig like there's this period in our history where you sort of you know any photo of something important you could probably see earl warren somewhere in that photo i mean he's just a, a very significant figure and and this biography is a masterfully written biography uh so uh, so something Sam could do, something anyone could do, if they're interested in learning more about uh, about Earl Warren, is to read this biography. Yeah, and 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 maybe we will talk about that one day. We've got to, again, we got to find the right guest. But right, wh- one of the things I found apropos about this uh, bit of feedback is that, in a way, it's kind of what we're going to talk about today with your cases. Again, a little bit of a preview. It's not about Earl Warren in particular, and it's not about oh about Marbury. Marbury. It, it's not about Marbury directly, right? But it is going to be about. Power, right? The, oh, yes. and, and what law is really about, and, and what the you know, not so just any, power, judicial power. Yeah, very specifically. And, so and and you know, okay, okay. Yeah. So I, uh, um, so Sam, we're not going to talk about uh, the specific thing that you you want to talk about, at least on this episode. Right. But you know, this might be of interest to you. Yeah. All right, Joe, we got one more mm. that I know about. Listener and, Dave, and, and we've been off, so I, I hope we haven't missed anybody. I don't really don't think we have. I okay. mean, I'm I'm pretty good about. Um, uh, the email okay. that we receive and forwarding it to you. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, email received at oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. And as we mentioned last time, this feedback to oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com or to our Twitter account, sure. Oral Argument, follow us there. Yep. Like us on Facebook. You bet. Oh, we got one We got one comment on Facebook, and we're going to have to put that off until the next show. Shoot. Okay. Sorry. I didn't know sorry. about that. Yeah, no, I just, that just came in. I've just returned... My apologies to the listener who who put something up there. We will get to your feedback in the next show. Okay, uh, but fo- like us on Facebook, follow us on on Twitter, and on Twitter, uh, that's where we got the 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 monkey selfie yeah. uh, uh, comment. But you can do that. But if you but this is the fuel on which we run, as which we said last time. Yes, right. Feedback. So, so what listen- do we get here? Go ahead, listener. Go ahead, uh, listener, Dave. Um, yeah. it's a it's a uh, it's a rich email, a multi paragraph email. Uh, and it is in response to, in riffing off of the show we did last time about your favorite case, Plessy against Ferguson. And uh, listener Dave talks about the fact that uh, he mentions that he's Canadian. And so it's interesting to him that he f- is so fascinated to and drawn to constitutional law in the United States, given yeah. that he's not here. Um, he's in Canada, or he's Canadian. Maybe he is here, but um, but he's I Canadian. thought he was from Canada. Yeah. Um, and you could, because he does cute things like spell favorite with a U. So he's, he's not just Canadian. He's, you know, yeah, charmingly Canadian. <laughs> uh, and, uh, so he, he's fascinated by all the issues, uh, raised by the Plessy case. Um, uh, as, uh, as he says, as a gay person, as an Afro-Caribbean de- person of Afro-Caribbean descent, um, and, uh. You know, all the issues that Plessy touches on are things he uh, cares about and is interested in. Uh, and he also, interestingly, um, says, you know, as someone who doesn't have any formal training in law, uh, his undergrad degree is in music, uh, that he, he he still finds these things very interesting. And there are so many compelling issues about civil rights uh, today uh, in the news, same-sex marriage case and uh, cases and uh, rights of transgender people yeah. and 
So as a culture, you know, we're all just kind of constantly ha- hashing out these issues of constitutional significance. And, and therefore, even though he's not a lawyer, doesn't have legal training, he finds it all very interesting. I think that's great. and this Which is, which is terrific. I mean, this is one of the reasons we do the show, right? Um, right. Because I think so many of the issues that are, that are thought within the legal dom- domain are, I think, totally within the apprehension of just everyday smart people who do other things. Absolutely. Um, and... So, you know, hopefully one of the things we can do on the show is make more, you know, is bring to light for, for, for more of these people um, who, who are not lawyers but right. who have an interest in this stuff. Like, you know, what are the issues? What are we talking about? Translating the, you know, the sometimes jargon-filled debates into something that everybody can, can be a part of. And right. I just, I loved getting this feedback. It made my day. Well, so, something that people can be a part of and something, frankly, that they're already a part of. Like whether you right. want to be or not, you are because again, this is the water that we're swimming in. Is the the culture that's struggling with all these questions right. um, all the time, as it has been for a very long time, if not forever. Uh, now he also mentions in in his last paragraph about how uh, there is a rich and deep Canadian constitutional law tradition, which is really which is true. And for people here who might not know this. Uh, about uh, Canada and its Charter of Rights and Freedoms, uh, I encountered quite a bit of this material in uh, the comparative con law class that I did in Oxford. There was uh, there's a lot of really terrific uh, stuff from the Canadian Supreme Court uh, that is you know challenging and provocative, and uh, anyone who's interested in these issues who hasn't looked to the Canadian experience, you you you. You could. It's very accessible. Uh, it's in English, which not all constitutional court decisions are across right, the world. Right. Um, we need uh, to get a guest to help us with. It. I mean, I think that'd make for a good show. Yeah, totally. Yeah, we just got to find the the, um, the the person who's willing to come on to our podcast with us. So us he looks that. forward to hearing about my favorite cases. Well, you're in so luck. Perhaps we should talk about <laughs> that. Yeah, you're in luck. Um, so so thanks all to your to your feedback. We just uh, really do. Yeah, keep it coming. Love getting it. It's you know our, our listener numbers are, are up dramatically from when we started the show, um, and that's always good to know that people are downloading it and and listening. That that helps to to know that people not only are listening to it but are actually listening to the whole episode and and getting something out of it and giving some feedback. That is, uh, uh, you know, certainly certainly makes it worth it right. for me. Definitely. Uh, Joe. So let's let's res- be responsive to at least part of this mm. feedback mm-hmm. and. And talk about what what your favorite cases are, and mm. uh, of course your favorite case is Paul Scraff, <laughs> because you it love, is not. Although you that's love a fascinating case. And the Paul Scraff case and, is fascinating because that's the that's a, a very challenging question of causation and liability and uh, Paul Scraff. Uh, who wrote Paul Scraff? Is that a hand opinion? No, Cardozo. Cardo. That's right. It's a Car- Cardozo. Cardozo opinion. versus Andrews. This. It's funny. I am. Um, I have this habit of attributing anything before 1950 that I think is a totally awesome judicial opinion. My first guess is that it's going to be learned hand. Huh. But um, but it isn't always so. You know, his brother, Augustus, was on the court. It was his cousin, actually. Oh, really? Um, not his brother. Yeah. All right. They used to say, what, um, either write like learned or or read learned but follow Augustus. Is that right? Have you heard that before? <laughs> no, I haven't heard that before. That's funny. Um, um, yeah. I just cut a learned hand case from my property book for this year. Oh, that's a bit of a the tragedy. one which kind of distinguished INS versus AP. 
the scarf one. Ah, yes, one. the Cheney Brothers silk yeah, pattern yeah, yeah, case. Yeah, yeah, Brothers, that's it. Terrific case. Yeah, where he basically says, yeah, they said this, but, you know, screw it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, and, and not so many words. And funny how um, that's, that's a, what, a wonderful, uh, what a wonderful mention, because, of course, in part, uh, one thing that gave him the freedom to do that was the Erie case. And this is your, this is, I, I, now, I, now let me just say this. So your, your favorite case is this Erie... How, how do, Erie Railroad against Tompkins. Okay. And, is one of the two favorite cases. Yeah. And when you first told me this, I was like, oh, geez. Because <laughs> <laughs> I remember reading Erie in law school and Erie Doctrine. Like no one says Erie without saying Doctrine. Right. And... And for, you know, for your, you know, your normal person, and let's face it, Joe, I'm a normal person. You are. Uh, when you hear something doctrine, your name, you know, your your brain kind of says, oh boy, <laughs> you know, I got something. <laughs> like, not the eerie case, the eerie doctrine. It's like, oh, what do, so I, I, I remember the case. I remember learning the doctrine. Sure. Um, I, it seemed like this was going to be boring to me. And then I, I read the cases and reread the cases, uh, Erie and then the other case we're going to talk about yeah. in preparation for you, today. You, you re- and I bet. And I texted you. I bet today. See, here's the thing. I bet you really read it for the first time today because what you probably read in a case book in law school was, um, and, and it's as a case book co-author and you pre- prepare case materials as well. Yeah. We know the, how, how important it is sometimes to edit quite mercilessly, right. a case down to some bare essentials. Right. But Erie is one of those cases where when you edit it down to its bare essentials, you drain virtually all the life out of it. Uh, and so I bet what you read today was, you know, from the pages of the U.S. reports, in right. effect. And therefore, you were seeing it in its vibrant original. You weren't seeing this sort of hopelessly, blandly chopped to bits little snippet uh, which it's been turned into in many modern. I cases. did read the hopelessly unparagraphed original, <laughs> uh, so we're going to put a link to this. Everybody should go and look. And sometimes when I put these kinds of these older cases in my in my materials for my students, I will insert paragraphs, just because you know it, it, you do get this effect of a wall of text. Because for whatever reason, these uh, in these old cases, you're talking about Google Scholar that y- yeah. gives you. A, oh, okay. So what I usually do when I'm reading a case from this era mm-hmm. is I go to, um, and I'm very blessed to have the ability to do it. I go to the Hein Online collection, which we have by virtue of being on a law faculty, and I look in the U.S. reports pages. Yeah, so I'm you, looking at it as it's typeset by the court, but it's still they don't put paragraphs. They have these extremely long pra- paragraphs in these old opinions. They know how to use the hard. Return their paragraph. Breaks. So are you saying the paragraphs that appear in Google Scholar are not? That's not the original. Paragraph? It may not. I, I've never looked at the right, Google so we're Scholar. Look at we're going to get to the bottom of this. We're going to we're going to look at this anyway. I've not, yeah. <laughs> I've not looked at the Google Scholar uh, version of Erie, so I don't know whether or not it faithfully replicates the true paragraph breaks in the. Yeah, that does not look right. Okay. Um, okay. But in any event. Since I can't vouch for that, um, the U.S. reports has plenty of page breaks. Well, you did not pick Pardon this case. Breaks, you did not me. pick this case, though, for its use or non-use of paragraphs. I take correct. It. Okay, so, so why don't you saying, tell me something? You were talking about the experience you had in yeah. it as, as law school. So say more about that. Well, I mean, I, I this was just part of civil procedure, or civil procedure two. I forget which one, or maybe we probably did it again in federal jurisdiction or federal courts, depending on what you call it at your particular law school. And right. so it's something to learn. And 
Uh, so you kind of learn what the rule is, but I didn't engage with the set of reasons in Swift and the reasons in Erie mm. and the, and the sense in which Erie is a, and we're going to get to the details of it. Listeners don't tune out yet. And, 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 and I'll elaborate on this as we go through, but just the absolute triumph of legal realism mm. represented by this opinion. Uh, um, realism and well, positivism for sure. Right. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. We'll, we'll talk more about that in, in in a minute. Certainly, positivism. Yeah, right. And and the word actually appears. And anyway, we'll get into that. But uh, I I know you know so much more now, having taught classes both in legal theory and in legislation regulation and property. Right. I mean, the, everything I've done since being in law school has made prepared me better to read this case with fresh eyes. Yeah, and it really isn't it a remarkable. Um, it's a remarkable event. It's so, it's amazing because you can see the you can you can see the the sweat equity built up over decades yeah. leading to this opinion. Oh yeah, right. Um, so here, so let me say, so these two opinions, they're both decided on the same day, and uh, you haven't said what the other one is yet. Do you United want? States against Caroline Products, which was a decision about whether or not uh, a criminal statute that Congress had passed, a, a statute outlawing um, the, um, was it a criminal statute? Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was just a civil prohibition. A statute outlawing the interstate movement of a particular kind of milk product uh, known as filled milk. This is milk where the milk fat has been taken out and some sort of vegetable fat, such as coconut oil, has been put back. Right. Um, so it has the semblance of milk, but is not in fact pure milk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this product was called Mill Nut, milk and coconut, Mill Nut. Uh, delightful. <laughs> yeah, delightful. delightful. And uh, the uh, Caroline Products Company uh, was subject to some sort of enforcement action by the United States. And the company answered that it shouldn't. I think it was a criminal because it's a reference to indictment and demur. Yeah, it's at um, least a prohibition, yeah. like you said. Uh, so the company says, well, this statute's unconstitutional. Uh, because Congress can't regulate interstate commerce in its fashion, uh, and uh, and even if they could, it violates the Fifth Amendment's uh, uh, prohibition against denying liberty without uh, denying property or or liberty without. This is the liberty to 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 contract for filled milk. If right. you want that, the liberty uh, to buy it, the liberty or to deprivation sell it. of property, namely the the value of the milk. Yeah. Uh, so reconstituted with coconut oil. So on the same day. April 25th, 1938, the Supreme Court decides these two cases uh, and decides them uh, over some dissent, uh, not enough to prevent the decisions, but over some dissent. Also, Justice Cardozo was quite ill at this point. He didn't participate in either of these decisions. Uh, And so the court is reduced in number. So the contest over who will sign and and what will be a majority is a little bit more uh, exciting, I suppose, in that in that event. Uh, But here you have these two opinions decided the same day that together, uh, both in the way that Justice Stone uh, provides the analysis for a congressional uh, regulation of interstate commerce in sort of regular commercial goods, right? Um, That's the Caroline Products case. And in Erie against Tompkins, uh, the way the Supreme Court construes this federal statute telling federal courts where they're supposed to get the rule of decision they use in a case when that case is a diversity case. In other words, why it's in federal court, because it's citizens of two different states. 
rather than being on some federal cause of action. So in these two cases together, the court massively, massively reworks, fundamentally changes the role the Supreme Court plays in American life. Yeah. Because it reconfigures the, the ability that states have to not only by virtue of state statutes, but also by virtue of state court decisions, the, the power that states have to articulate the law as the people in that state wish it to be in the state of Pennsylvania or New yeah. York or Georgia, what have you. And in Caroline products, the, the, and here the court is uh, cementing something that started a few years earlier. The court saying Congress, it has, a great deal of latitude to regulate uh, commercial relations in the United States using its interstate commerce power. Um, and that th those regular, those congressional statutes are going to enjoy this presumption of constitutionality with a very tame rationality review. Um, that what this means is that the court is radically withdrawing from its sort of freestanding supervision of state or national commercial regulation. Yep. Uh, and can in, I recapitulate in a second? And okay. in, this is in 1938. So we're, it's a year after the court packing plan. Yeah. So everyone's very aware of the intense conflicts at the national level f in terms of the court's role in American life, yeah. what, it, what, what it will be and why it will be that way instead of some other way. Um, and the economic crisis that, President Roosevelt and the Congress is trying to reckon with. Um, and these two decisions that come down on the same day, they're just, I think they're so amazing. They're, they are, uh, they're f so fruitful, full of so many interesting things. They both spawned enormous literatures of commentary in, for legal prof law professor types, right? Many, many, many subsequent decisions, fascinating bodies of law. Um, and as you say, it's about power. Right. And right. in, in, I think, in a sense, for me, this day, the 25th of April in 1938, is, is on a close par with Washington's decision not to seek a third presidential term. Wow. Yeah. Um, because it's about, it's not just about power, it's about the decision to sacrifice power. Right. By the powerful. Oh, interesting. Which yeah. almost never happens. Supreme Court voluntarily giving up. Voluntarily withdrawing radically, policy, yeah. yeah, from its ability to supervise with with a you know with a very free hand, um, the nature of regulatory, especially commercial regulatory principles throughout the United States, stunning. It's a staggering shift and a and a stunning act of self restraint. Now, let me just recapitulate to bring uh, just the. Not necessarily the facts of each case, but what each case is about, just yep. to bring the listeners up to speed again, because these are a little bit complicated, and but they're totally understandable by uh, by non lawyers. Sure. Um, so, so uh, Erie is all about the law that a federal court applies in a case which is not based on any federal statute or bit of purely federal law, right? But which comes to the court uh, testing some grounds of the law that would ordinarily be applied in a state, okay? Yes. And so uh, in states, you have law which comes from statutes, from state legislatures, right? Everybody knows that. Sure. But an awful lot of law 
including most of the law of contracts, at least at that time. We've as seen, well as the law of personal injury, torts. Well, I was going to say also the law of torts um, uh, was governed judicially, I mean, or was made judicially sure. over time through the common law. That's what we mean by the common law. This is the law made by judges using policy and is very upfront about... Uh, Deciding disputes between the citizens in that place who right. go to court and say, resolve our dispute. Right. So you and I have a contract over maybe the sale of a, of a house or an automobile. You're familiar with these kinds of contracts, right, Joe? Sure. Okay. Um, <laughs> especially, Joe likes to sell and buy things. Uh, <laughs> did you get a new car while I was away? So unfair. Yeah. Uh, uh, and we have, Sadly, some dis- no. we have some dispute about that. That's a contract dispute. Yep. And that'll be governed by the state's contract law. Now, increasingly, that kind of law is governed by statutes. The legislatures of the various states have gotten in the business of, of passing more um, statutes to, to govern those things. That's but true. Th- and in 1938, therefore, the, the balance be, uh, between statutory law and decisional law in any given state was probably tilted much more heavily toward decisional law in 1938 when this case is decided. Decisional law meaning the decisions of judges, which over time make what the law is. And, sure. Uh, so whether or not there was a proper offer and acceptance and whether or not there was proper consideration, whether we did the right form, whether uh, there's some exception. Because- or in tort law, if, if a negligence case about a personal injury, yeah. um, what, like a kind of duty, what kind of duty did one person owe to another? Mm-hmm. What, how did they discharge that duty? Um, all the sorts of things that would go into tort decisions. And Erie itself involved... Uh, a tort case. Uh, it was a tort case. This was a guy walking along uh, railroad tracks, struck by a, a passing train, but he was... Uh, and, and alleged that maybe there was a door which was negligently open on the train, which struck yeah. him because he wasn't in a place where the train should have hit him. And it's all about whether he can sue in such circumstances. Correct. And so how do you know whether the um, – and he uh, – the railroad company claims that he was a trespasser because he was walking alongside the uh, – alongside the railroad tracks and that this that state's law said that trespassers can't recover yeah. and and he says well wait a minute that shouldn't that's not necessary first of all i may disagree about whether that's the rule in the state but i also disagree that 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 necessarily binds the federal courts because guess what i'm even though tort law is a state law cause of action and if we were both citizens of the same state we would be in state court correct in this case because the amount in controversy is high enough in other right. words the amount i'm claiming is high enough and I'm a citizen of one state, and you, railroad company, are a citizen of a different state. Namely, New York. I am entitled to sue Sue. in federal court. In New York. Right. Because the federal courts don't hear every case. They only hear cases involving federal law or cases which are so-called diversity cases, which you mentioned, which are citizens of different states suing one another where the amount in controversy is high enough. And this is such a case. Now, in such a case where there's a state law based claim or a claim that wouldn't ordinarily get into federal court. There's no federal statute. There's no constitutional claim at issue. Uh, And maybe it's a contract claim. Maybe it's a tort claim ordinarily resolved in state courts, either by the common law or using state statutes. What law should the federal court apply? Should it? uh, And it appears from the uh, Judiciary Act, which is the congressional statute, which gives the court the authority. Right to hear these kinds of diversity cases, that it should basically apply the law of the state. Yeah, now what's interesting is, well, one of the many interesting things is, this statute, you know, you think about it, when the when the country gets created and there is, for the first time, this national judiciary, um, Congress quite uh, helpfully 
thinks about things like, well, what law should they use when they decide a case, right? I mean, you actually have to think about these things if you're creating a court system. Right. Whose rules? Uh, yeah. yeah, whose rules would apply? Um, uh, and this general question, when a court is deciding a case, which law should apply in that case is a, is a very pervasive question in international relations within our country in between two states. Let's say it's a Georgia contract, but then you move to, uh, Maine and I move to California and the contract is still being performed. Yeah. And later there's a breach. Is it governed by California law, by Maine law, by Georgia law? Are we in state court? Even if we're in federal court or state court, we're still, so all kinds of questions about which state's law applies. Fascinating questions, right? Then you layer on top of that, but this is not just two different states. It's the federal system in relation to the state system. So Congress in 1789, you mentioned the Judiciary Act. Well, it was passed by the very first Congress. So Section 34 of the Judiciary Act at that time gives what's now referred to as the Rules of Decision Act, which is, says, as you indicate, right, you, the, the federal court should apply the law of the state. Right. And but that's, that, that governs these, th- this, uh, event. So the question is in a, in a tort, let's t- just take a tort case like this one, where there's no statute setting out, let's suppose there's no statute setting out liability on the part of someone who negligently injures another and establishing what the exceptions to such liability might be. Uh, But there are a series of judicial decisions in that state which establish rules which the court applies in later cases. In other words, there is common law establishing the scope and terms of liability for personal injury. Yes. Uh, When the federal court hears a similar claim or hears a tort claim, does it apply that body of common law made in that state does it defer to that body or even not even defer does it absolutely apply that body of common law <laughs> right. or does it make its own now you would think that the judiciary act would resolve that question it applies the state's law but we're uh you know we we have this case swift versus tyson from 1842 written by justice story who enjoys this sort of outsized reputation among judges and and lawyers certainly at that time probably even now um as just an extremely adept legal thinker uh he's actually it's funny story has written a num- wrote a number of patent opinions that continue to be cited and relied on today i mean just a very accomplished jurist uh, and so story writes this case swift against tyson and, and and is construing the same federal statute the rules of decision act we apply the law of the state. And he says, well, what does that mean? Yeah, what is it? So that's the, that's the interesting thing. What is the law of the state? What is the law of the state? That's what it turns on. And he says, um, the way he frames it. Now, Swift, I should say, before you say that, but Swift is, uh, it's a case, a complicated case about um, the validity of various financial transactions uh, in New York among very sophisticated parties. Right. Uh, and so it's sort of a high finance case it's the today it would be the sort of case you might hear involving you know maybe a goldman sachs on one side and some other sophisticated equity private equity firms or something so in other words a, a very um uh not a simple contract for the sale of a car yeah it's like not a it's not a simple contract case and some people might even call it not a contract case but a negotiable instruments case or right. something like that but for, and a know, sort I, of a high flying, i think it's all contract it's but a it's high a, flying finance case in, in among the elites yeah right and so story is writing in a context where he's got parties who are asking the federal court to provide a federal standard 
don't don't be dictated to by the New York state courts or right. any other state courts. Create a national federal court standard that will facilitate this sort of high-flying finance and, in a sophisticated country. And and right? that's the way he frames the opinion. He says the, the problem here is what is what is the state's law that we are bound by the Judiciary Act to apply? And yeah. he says, look, the uh, it's a, he says, it's observable that the courts of New York do not found their decisions upon this point, the one which would resolve this case, right. upon any local statute or positive, fixed, or ancient local usage, but they, and here's the important point, but they deduce the doctrine from the general principles of commercial law. So there's this framing at the beginning that there is a, there's a body of law which is made by the legislature. There's a positive body of law which is local in character and which is made. Right. And, and, that's, and that's what we would have to follow right. if it controlled this case. But since there isn't one, right. and all the New York courts have done is look to those general principles of commercial law, right. this is the what am I a potted plant reasoning, right? With Swift against Tyson, Justice Story thinks to himself and says, you know, what are we, potted plants? No, we can do the same thing the New York state courts do. <laughs> and here's what he says. This is eminently understandable, and, and this is midway through what I think is this very long paragraph, but you've contended may not be one long paragraph. We'll get to the bottom. This may be the most important part of this show. <laughs> he says, in the ordinary use of language, it will hardly be contended that the decisions of courts constitute laws. <laughs> They are, at most, only evidence of what the laws are and are not themselves laws. So what he's saying, this is the idea of their, what courts are, there is this platonic ideal right. of the what law. commercial law is. These are just general principles out there. They call it general law. Right. And it's out there to be discovered. To be discerned. To be discerned. By and all jurists, courts state are doing, or federal. Right. All no. courts are doing is saying, I wonder what that general law is. And I'm going to engage in my kind of scholarly enterprise of trying to discern what the law in the sky truly says. Right. You know, there's a little bit of that. I think it's more complicated than that. But in essence, law is something which is deduced, right? There are general principles, at least this kind of common law, when it's not taken right. over by statute. Correct. Um, and on this ground... And this, again, is just a story in the Swift case explaining that the federal courts are free because this is what's happening, right? You, we're discerning the principles of commercial law from the law itself uh, and applying it in a case, there's not a New York statute that applies. So we can do it just as easily as a New York state court can do it. And therefore we shall do it. We shall state what the general law is. And he says, yeah, exactly. And he says that the, um, the decisions of local courts, meaning state courts here, right? Um, uh, uh, upon subsubjects are entitled to and will receive the most deliberate attention and respect from this court. Yeah, we'll read them, we'll think about them. But they cannot furnish positive rules or conclusive authority right. by which our own judgments are, bound to, are, are, are to be bound up and governed. And then he says this interesting thing, Joe. The law respecting negotiable instruments, which again is this complicated body of law, which you can think of like contract law, and indeed I do think of like contract law, but uh, may be truly declared in the language of Cicero, adopted by Lord Mansfield in Luke versus Lyde, which is another case, to be in great in a great measure not the law of a single country only, but of the commercial world. And so what state courts do is they deduce applications to particular cases from right. that general law, which is out there, established by Cicero. It's global. And, and they may do it wrongly or, or rightly. Right. And the it's, court is kind of thinking, why should we be bound 
by the wrong interpretations of state court about what the true law right. is. If wrong, it be, right? If we read it and we think about it and we say, well, that's not right, uh, we look at that same body of principle uh, articulated uh, from time to time by such great jurists as Lord Mansfield, who's acknowledged to be sort of the father of Anglo-American commercial law. Mm-hmm. Um, it's because Lord Mansfield, that was an English decision. Um, we look at it and we see quite a different result for a case such as this. So why would we defer to the New York State Court? Where it's, you know, Supreme Court, it's like it says it on the building. We're, <laughs> the, we're here to give the answer. So we're not going to defer to them. We'll read it. We'll think about it because it's helpful to read and think about anything potentially useful. And what what I hadn't quite appreciated, Joe, is that... Uh, and this is the view that's rejected completely by Erie. Of course, right. And I hadn't really appreciated it. And I'm sure my profs in law school said this, and I just wasn't prepared to think about it. But this is really a case about what law is. Totally. It's what is law, and in a very practical sense, because whether or not this guy can recover for his injuries after being hit by a train, totally depends on what the meaning of law is. Yep. And when Swift was decided, it was the positive enactments of the legislature and the general principles out there, which any court could deduce either rightly or wrongly. And, and... well, no, no. I would say that it, at the the law of the state is the phrase in the statute. So the law of the state refers to those low state statutory law, maybe decisional law on purely local matters, th- things like real estate title, um, which is also referenced. But yeah, they Swift. do say that. But, but it's but, not so clear how, what distinguish. You know, and that's that's one of the problems here is distinguishing what is in that body of general law. I'm, I'm making a more general point here. I think there's a conception of law in this opinion. Which says in Swift, in Swift, right? Which okay. says there is a body of positive law, which are the yes. positive contributions of discrete human beings in deciding for themselves at a particular right. time and place what the law should be, and they do that in legislation and maybe through some slight. And, and the congressional statute says that those are the things we're bound to apply when they come from a state. We're bound to apply those positive law things. And then there is State a, statutes. And then there is this somewhat fuzzily bounded sea of principles right. governing other areas of human life. Which isn't the law of any state. And it's which just no, the law. And which no court makes. Yes. Right? But courts de- deduce the content of that unbounded sea or fuzzily bounded sea right. from just general principle. Yep. Right, that this is a it, so the, the, there's a there's a law which is made and a law which is discovered, right. kind of two spheres of the law, and all this stuff which is not contained in statutes and maybe some other stuff as you say like purely local judgments and it's not one of the problems as we'll see again is that figuring out what is included in that category of positive law turns out to be very hard. Yes, uh, but all that other stuff right is the is the stuff which is discovered by judges right and some judges think they know the right answers but discover it wrong. And so this, the Supreme Court says, why should we be bound by a state court, which kind of says, ah, oh, I've discovered what the true law of negotiable instruments is, but they got it wrong. We should be able to, you know, say what we think. Because, you know, they're either, they're either right or wrong about what the true law of negotiable instruments is. Yes. Rather than having an opinion about policy for their state. Which would, which would bind the Supreme Court in any case, would bind any federal court. Yeah, uh, I, I, in a case that's adjudicating on that question, it, it would bind it because of the ju- of the Judiciary Act. Correct. And, and what I'm I, I'm just trying to push a little bit to say that there's the, the disagreement here is about a broader conception of law to begin with. It's and about the, both things. Of exactly, it has to be right because the Judiciary Act references state law. 
the, the ju- law of the state. Exactly. So the, what is the law of the state? The Judiciary Act is the is the particular legal vehicle that makes this question about what the about the conception of law matter of course. to the outcome of cases. Right. Uh, so then we get to um, so that's the law for a long time. Yeah, almost a century. And so this is kind of back to our um, discussion. So, of- and one of the things Erie portrays in discussing the fact that the court's going to overrule Swift against Tyson, and the court overrules itself quite rarely. It's not a that's not a frequent event. The Supreme Court tries, right. like the Dickens, not to overrule itself, uh, especially not in a case where what's at issue is its construction of a statute. Yeah, uh, the court's rule of of of. The court's uh, preference not to overrule itself, to stick by what it's already decided. Well, especially in this case where where this decision is going to change the day-to-day behavior of every federal court in a whole bunch of cases, right? Yes. And every case that was decided before on these grounds, if it were decided after this— Would be different. Would be different. Could be different. Yeah, yeah it could be, depending on— um, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and so, so it's quite—it's an it's a issue of great moment. Uh, and it's so the court Swift is a is a is a case that decides the meaning of a federal statute, and the the Supreme Court's practice is that is the context in which it is least inclined to overrule its prior decision. Why? Because Congress can fix it if the court got it wrong. That's the theory, right? The theory says, well, if we screwed up that statute, if what Congress really meant when it said state law was not just statutory law but also decisional law congress could have fixed it and they haven't it's been a century Uh, indeed occasionally someone proposes that congress fix it and they never pass it i i just yes that's that's right that's evidence that congress knows it can do what it wants to do and what we should do is not not be a moving target we might have screwed it up but the it would make it worse to get to be a moving target day to day so the normal practice would be in a statutory case stand pat even if we think we got it wrong we should just leave it, right. let Congress fix it. And they it, don't and do it, that here. Indeed, there had been moves to, to do something different. There have been rumblings from the Supreme Court itself about the need to do something different. Dissenting opinions. Never, right. right. And, but, but this is a case where this sea change in the law, and it's, I think it's hard to overstate what a sea change this was, right? That, Dramatic. That the states will control policy. Yes. Period. Right? On matters of, uh, of state law, uh, whether they are decisional right. or otherwise. And in these diversity cases, but it gives up power. The effect of this is to give up a lot of power by federal courts <laughs> over to the states, hugely. And but but I, you know, is this a is this uh, does this represent a break in interpretation of a statute? I'm not so sure. I think what really changes is not necessarily the interpretation of what the statute says, as to what the Supreme Court conceives of law as being. Those two things, you keep wanting to pull those things apart, and I keep wanting to put them back together. I know. Because, this is getting frustrating. Because they are, because <laughs> the, the mistake that I think you're making uh, oh boy. is not, it's not that they are, of course they are analytically distinct, um, but you can't do one without the other. You can't, you can't decide how to apply the statute without deciding what law is, because the statute itself refers to that very idea. Let me give you this. What, okay? if, the, what if the statute had said that the Supreme Court, or, or that the federal courts must apply the positive law of every jurisdiction? I think you'd be back in the same quandary, because you would say, well, what's positive law? Exactly. Is that just statutory law or, or case law, too? And, and one, one way of looking at that is, what do we think Congress meant by positive law? 
And then we get into a question of like, are we going to be originalist about this? What they would have thought positive law meant then, et cetera, et cetera. Another way of thinking about this is, well, let's just apply the text and what we think now. And, you know, they're, we're not going to get into whole... You know, what are you trying to make this not a case about? You seem to be trying to make it not about something. Well, it emphatically is itself framed as a case about the meaning of a statute. Because Justice Brandeis talks, the way he constructs the entire opinion is as a case about the meaning of the statute. Because right. one of the arguments he has to overcome is the argument that if this, in normally what we do in a case about a statute is we leave it in place. We don't overturn right. it. But this is one of the reasons I say what, what this is a triumph of realism, but also a triumph of, as you say, positivism, uh, that what the Supreme Court does here is to say that it, the whole conception of a body of law out there, which is merely discovered by judges, is incoherent. Correct. That is not what law is, and you right. cannot make a distinction between discovered law and positive law. Everything Which is why is we are going to law. interpret the Rules of Decision Act in a different way. Yes, but it's almost like you couldn't interpret it in any other way. Well, yes, of course that's why you can identify Swift as an error. So, Because you realize that, well, that can't possibly be right. the theory of that statute. I could write a pure, and I agree with you. I mean, I think that, uh, and indeed, you know, Brand, one of the things he does in this opinion is to say, we've got this scholarship, recent scholarship showing us a, uh, that the original purpose of this statute was to make the federal courts apply all uh, all state laws, right? Yeah, so and I don't know that there's that. actually much there there, yeah, or well, that he even believed there was much there there. I don't know. But I can make a rhetorical argument that... What the statute meant to include in the body of law to which the federal courts had to, you know, turn was all positive law. And that the problem with Swift is it failed to recognize that everything is positive law. Yes. And so what we're changing now is our recognition of what law is. Correct. And now when we apply the statute using the same understanding of the statute that was used in Swift, we get a different result. Now, I say that's rhetorical and, you know, for reasons which you well understand, I think. I mean, it's that my argument is rhetorical rather than substantive, because you could repackage my argument as as being about what the target of that, you know, of, of, of uh, the uh, drafters of that statute had in mind. Yeah, I don't think, um, I don't, okay, there's several things going on here. Even if you think that... <laughs> The legal question, hey, Darcy, even if that's what you're trying to decide, um, you don't then need to take the further step, oh, so, so we need to have a discussion about intent or about originalism, or because those are just methodologies for construing statutes. Right. So, so there's actually several steps going on. You could say, well, is it really a case about the meaning of the statutory provision? I think it's whatever else you may believe Certainly, you can't disagree. That's entirely the way the opinion is framed, is as a discussion about the meaning of the statute. Right. Um, and in discussing the meaning of the statute, they, of course, talk about what law is. They have to. Right. Because that's what the statute is about. It references state law. Uh, and so... And for listeners who have heard this, you know, if you want to think, back to, you know, the famous uh, quip by Justice Roberts at his confirmation hearing about how he's going to be an just umpire balls and strikes. just call balls and strikes and not bat um that's one understanding of what judges should do in cases involving the interpretation of statutes or the constitution um this older understanding of discovery of general principles would apply that understanding of what a judge is supposed to do even to the common law where the judges are announcing rules which are contained in no statute or uh, right mm-hmm. and and 
I'm just trying to tee it up a little bit for uh, for listeners who uh, um, just to I don't know put put an exclamation point on this radical distinction between positive law and uh, and and discovered law. Now the the uh, we haven't gotten in a way we haven't gotten to the most interesting the, these many 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 minutes into the discussion we have not yet actually broached in a way well, the most important aspect of the of the case which is the fact that in Justice Brandeis's hands, um, the issue is one of constitutional moment. It's a, it's a, it's a question of constitutional significance. But, let me, can, can I just, uh, there are three points I think that he makes. Can okay. I just say what those are really quickly, and you tell me it if would you agree? You're urgently needing to I, do I so. do want to do this. I just want to summarize, because um, I think it's, it's easy to understand the argument in this case. And you imply that I'm making it hard to understand, but by all, no, means, but I want, by all means proceed. <laughs> I'm not a pie. I, I want you to do the color commentary, Joe. Proceed, Governor. <laughs> I'm the Pat Summerall to your John Madden. <laughs> You're angry. Not at all. <laughs> one. Point number one. Recent scholarship reveals that the purpose of the Judiciary Act is at odds, or was at odds, with Swift. Right? So, uh, Swift was just wrong. Because now we know more about what they meant when they passed the Judiciary Act or by they, I mean Congress. That's, that's kind of argument number one. Argument t- number two is still not the one you say is the most interesting, but I do want to get this out as, as a second argument. And that's the consequentialist angle, right? He actually, in the opinion, says first, second, third, and I yeah, think there's even yes. a fourth. And this is the second point, right? That, um, that Swift has been politically and socially defective, it, it hasn't delivered on its promise of, of uniformity. So to the extent you think uniformity is a goal by having the federal courts kind of manage the system of national common law. It doesn't actually it, work. It hasn't worked because the states have not felt bound by what the federal courts have done. And it also works a dramatic unfairness because it's so manipulable. Exactly, yeah. And, by and sophisticated actors. Because depending on which law they want, they can either like uh, reincorporate their corporation in another state right. in order to achieve diversity if it's important enough. And so, in fact... There's a lot of forum shopping that occurs. Right. This is where uh, litigants game the system by intentionally setting it up so they can get in federal court or going into state court, and they just shop for the best laws. And and furthermore, it's been really hard in practice to identify general law and distinguish it from statute. So if a if a state legislature had passed a some statute uh, abrogating the common law rule with a particular part of common law, I mean, with a particular part of contract law, um, and there's a contract dispute which comes up which kind of touches that, do you... Do you have to apply that rule or not? I mean, there are all kinds of boundary problems which have proven to be right. really difficult uh, in practice. Um, but but here's the important thing, and this is we're getting to your important point, and uh, which we'll get back to. But he says, uh, Brandeis says that that consequentialist failing, that co- the failing to deliver good consequences uh, of, of Swift, would not have been enough for us to overrule it. Correct. Um, so the true ground is is the third ground. Uh, and that is the unconstitutionality of this interpretation of the Judiciary Act. Yep. It's not that the Judiciary Act is unconstitutional. Right. But when you read it as we did in Swift, when you take it to mean what we took it to mean in Swift, right. that federal courts could, in diversity cases, uh, reach decisions by looking into this general common law, which broods over the entire nation, indeed the entire globe, right? right. In the case of commercial law. Um, that you are violating uh, an important constitutional principle, namely the entire structure of the national government, which sets up a relationship between the Congress 
and state law uh, that is limited, right? So the, 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 I think the greatest single act of genius in the opinion is to his assertion, his recognition, that uh, if you read Swift this way, Congress has managed to give the courts a power we would deny Congress has itself. Right. Right. We, and he knows, right? We look at the last... Because, because Congress doesn't have the authority to make the contract law for the United States. declare contract law for the United right, States. Right. Congress has enumerated powers. In fact, powers. the court has been busy for 40 years denying Congress the power to do lots of things under the Commerce Clause. Right. Right. This is a great irony in the, the way right. this is being drafted, right? Is the very same people, he's thinking, who are going to bitterly complain that I've got this wrong about the limitations of our own power as a court have been busy tearing the feathers out of Congress's wings for the last four decades. Yeah. So how interesting that they will at the same time maintain they have this power, namely what? The power to declare a general federal law. And, but he does this by saying... This is not so. He does this by asserting, though, and this is the important jurisprudential point, he does this by asserting that there is no such thing as federal common law. That there is, I mean, there, there still is in a weird way. We're not going to get into it. There's but, no, no, there isn't. There is no general federal. There's no general law. federal common law. And he says there. He says there's no body of transcendental law. He uses that word, which is also uh, taken from a title of a you know a, a pretty well known legal realist tract. But yes. uh, made by no state, but obligatory absent a statute. So what he's saying is that there, all law, all common law is made. Right, and they, it involve, and he's also implicitly saying there are policies. So we have state courts making policy choices when they create their contract and yeah. tort law for the citizens of those states. Right, there is no body of tra- uh, transcendental law which states themselves don't make that. But that just would nevertheless from, oblige them. Which, right, <laughs> if if there were such a thing, you see, then it wouldn't be the assertion of power by the federal courts to decide on those grounds because right. they're not they're not grabbing any power from themselves they're just appealing to the same body of law that right. the states are obligated to right. no appeal one is. to no, no one's one grabbing power right. but he's saying no that's not the way it works every enactment of law is the positive enactment of law by human beings using policy type reasoning yeah. Whether- once you understand it that way then as then it's obvious that what the court did in swift was to grab power policy making power right and a power that if Congress had simply written a statute that said what the federal court should do in a diversity case is declare a general federal common law of the topic that's relevant, right? It would have been plain as day that the court was exercising a power that the court itself would have denied to Congress. Yeah. Which is a very strange thing to do, right? For the court to exercise a power that it thinks Congress could not have created. Right. Well, but Congress creates all the courts in the federal system other than the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court itself is created by the Constitution. But Congress creates all the lower federal courts. Yeah. Um, and so how could it be that Congress gave the federal courts a power that Congress itself doesn't possess? And, uh, and, and it's it's bizarre, right? It makes no sense. Here so again, the, well, it only makes sense if you believe in this idea of a transcendental law sitting out there, which is discovered and not made. And that's what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Once you deny that, once you agree that there is not this transcendental law, right? Then, yeah, you have to you have to read the Rules of Decision Act the way it's read in Erie, and uh, and it makes sense that the court would say. Uh, that when we're confronted with a state, a dispute among citizens of different states, what we need to do is figure out 
the applicable state law, and of course it could be judge-made law, it could be legislature-made law. We just need to figure out the applicable state law and apply it. And that is, and because that's all yeah. the fe- that's all a federal actor can do. Right. Congress couldn't create a statute about that thing unless it involved interstate commerce. We can't just create rules for those things. Yeah. We have we have to look to the state law. And 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 the reason we say this is a victory for positivism, or the uh, is because you know what positivism is is the assertion that all law depends for its um uh, for its validity on the um presence of certain social facts and not moral facts. I mean, and this is, it's much more complicated than that, but in essence, it's saying that law has a certain kind of uh, uh, sociological source, a, a source in human activity. Uh, it's not out there waiting to be discovered. It is created by people, and it's recognized by those acts of creation, you know, voting in a certain uh, legislature or the decision of a certain court, which is authorized to produce such a decision under some other bit of law, which right. itself has a social source. And so this is a, you know, this is a very positivist uh, decision. It is also realist, right? Because I think it, it it recognizes that the decisions of judges in common law cases are imbued with politics or imbued with policymaking authority that could go either way. Right. That, in other right. words, to choose to have a rule of liability in tort law that would rec- that would say that you know, like this guy can't recover because he was a trespasser, is to make a political decision about how to um, assign liability in such circumstances. It's about whether yeah. to uh, where people are allowed to be and what they can expect and how careful railroad companies have to be and balancing sure. various things. Right. Um, so this is that's what legal realism is all about. It's recognizing that. The law on the books, right, um, uh, is uh, either in judicial opinions or in statutes, is the result of a lot of policy making, right? And the decisions in individual cases involve irreducibly a certain kind of policy making. We can't cast our wand over and say, all we're doing here is calling a ball and strike, right? Right? That <laughs> everybody is always batting at least a little bit, yeah. right? Um, and, and so and that think, has implications yeah. for. Um, in a system where you have multiple overlapping sovereigns, as we do here in the United States, the fact that all law creation involves those policy choices for the citizens who are touched by them, th- that has great implications for what the court of one sovereign should do when it finds itself adjudicating an issue that implicates another sovereign. That yeah. You can't just look to this transcendent idea which makes the difference between the sovereigns disappear right. or seem trivial in comparison right right once that once that option's not available then you have to and joe you're waving your arm up in the sky right you yeah. have to treat this overlapping sovereigns question and what a court should do in that context quite differently right and as a consequence of this decision the supreme court is removing itself dramatically from the role of providing general principles of common law to govern lots of issues in the country. Right. Um, which had, had unsuccessfully been trying to enforce itself over. So it voluntarily gives up power in this case, um, a, a power which it now is candid that it possessed under Swift, right? Yes. And, and in a way that prevents Congress from recreating it, right? If Congress right. turned around and passed a statute that tries to overrule it, the courts made clear that statute would itself be unconstitutional. <laughs> yeah, which is pretty hilarious. And then in the next case, and we're not—I think we're going to have to leave it for the next episode, Joe. This is going to be a two-parter. Ugh. 
because I want to do. We're going to finish with just a brief little bit about the monkey selfie. Monkey selfies, yeah. But we're going to. So we'll talk about Caroline products on the next step, or maybe you know we'll see. But we're going to talk about Caroline products on another episode. Decided the same day by the same group of justices. Um, uh, and oh, so we need to say a few more things about. All right. So uh, since okay. we're not going to do since we're not going to do uh, Caroline today, which little, also gives up power, and that's the connection. I don't want to lose. We'll, yes, we'll mention this connection on this episode and the next one, but it also gives up power. But here, not to the states, but to Congress. Correct. Um, and and in so doing, these two companion cases again on this one day really reorient the relationship of the Supreme Court to the rest of. Uh, the legal system in the United States. Yeah. I mean, it's pr- a pretty big day um, <laughs> in the court. So, um, of course, there's a dissent. Yeah. Uh, mate, of course. There is a dissent in Erie Railroad against Tompkins, written by Justice Butler. Right. And Justice Butler, uh, it, one of the things, if you read Erie, one of the things it refers to repeatedly is a an earlier decision in a case called Black and White Taxi against Brown and Yellow Taxi. And in that case which had been decided a decade earlier. Uh, Justice a dispute about the proper color scheme for taxis, obviously. Apparently. Yeah. Uh, Justice Holmes had dissented, joined by Brandeis and Stone, the author of Caroline Products. Um, those three had dissented in the, bra- uh, the black and white taxi case. The author of the majority opinion in black and white taxi was Justice Butler, the dissenter in Erie. Yeah. So this is a multi-year struggle within the court itself about how it defines itself and its role in American life. Yep. And um, so a person could ask, well, you know, why isn't black and white taxi your favorite case? Uh, why is this your favorite case? Well, um, I love Brandeis. I love his writing, although it can get quite Rococo. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and, and, and I love that, I love that his approach carry the day. So I like watching a winner write about winning. Yeah, and we we didn't talk about this maybe as much as we could, but there's only so much time. But one other great thing about this opinion is that it, it and I mentioned this at the beginning, it represents the triumph of a long-running movement, uh, the both positivist and realist, yes. to change the conception of the law. And so this is a long-standing theoretical project which finally cashes out in practice. And, you know, you see this, um, certainly we see theoretical movements gain traction in practice and lose traction over time. Law and economics, right, with uh, beginning with, well, I think Hale is, is certainly uh, one who started, <laughs> but, you know, certainly with um, uh, Coase and then Posner and Calabresi. I mean, right. so now law and economics is, is, a, is an expected language. There, any kind of economic argument is almost automatically inbounds in a legal argument, right, right. in a way it wasn't before. Right. And now the language, in, and here, in, in a slightly earlier time, the language of realism, policy, consequentialism, right, the idea that we should evaluate laws by their consequences, this is now becoming inbounds, right? We're, we're having a more realistic conception of what we are as courts, what the legislature is as the legislature. We're reckoning directly now with who should decide what kinds of questions. Yeah. Like, that's happening here. And... It's not like just one day, or because no. uh, we, you know, what is the pressure? What is the 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 whole um, kind of intellectual scheme to which these no. justices turn, and why and are, why are they the of, people they are? And the decades of thought that lead into that, the right. decades of thought and work and conversation and writing, and and so you know the the the. I think of this case because it's the courts sacrificing its own power. Of course, it's also 
extremely pro-democratic. Yeah. In the in the sense of it's pro people governing themselves. Yeah. Uh, because the court, as an unelected branch, handing over power to, in this case, state legislatures and courts. Now, state courts can also be unelected, um, but they're certainly closer. The courts of Pennsylvania are closer to the people of Pennsylvania than the courts of New York or the federal courts of New York, as an example. Yeah. That's applicable. Especially back then. Right. So, but. you know, um, it's a, to me, it's a, it's a very kind of, you know, people power sort of way of thinking about this. Another thing I was thinking about. Which is about, another great thing about it to me. With, with the way that law changes and... Um, it's kind of like I don't know if I mentioned this on the show before, but the difference between like the in in geological terms, like between gradualism and catastrophism, right? Like the slow forces of erosion changing a landscape, right. and then the catastrophic like earthquake or meteorite hit or something like that that dramatically changes a landscape or a big flood which happens all of a sudden. And, and landscapes are the result of both kinds of forces, yes. right? And you see the same thing, and you know you can always you can make this analogy about any other area of life, but you can certainly make it about law, right? Why, why are we doing the things we're doing today uh, in law? And and the answer to that question, like why why do we do law the way we do, and why are these arguments in bounds and these arguments out of bounds today? I think is the result of both kinds of processes: the yep. slow change of kind of attitudes and styles that people have, and the slow. Uh, you know, increase in scope of this kind of argument and the retraction in scope of this other kind of argument because of changing tastes, political mores, or just attitudes that people have because of, you know, changes in society. Right. And catastrophic changes, which are, you know, you have two opposing forces. They couldn't be more clearly opposed. And one holds on for a while. And then one day, boom, the other one comes in. And that right. this seems like a catastrophic day in law. In, <laughs> but but in, but in a, a wonderful catastrophe. Right. In my view. And in Justice Butler's view. <laughs> he certainly viewed it as <laughs> well, a catastrophe. Well, he viewed um, it in the, in the negative term. Right? You know, right. Catastrophes can create beautiful landscapes. But it's, a, it's, it's clearly, this, I feel like this day is one of those hinges. It's one of those hinge days. Like yeah. a huge thing is turning, and you can see that this is the hinge on which it turns. Yeah. Is these two cases together. Now, we're going to talk about the second one. Uh, next time, the second one, not written by Brandeis, but instead yeah. written by Harlan Fisk Stone, mm-hmm. uh, the justice after whom my dog Harlan is named. We got to get Logan Sawyer's opinion on this stuff. Friend of the show. Oh yeah, it'd be great to legal historian. Yes, you know that that's one of those episodes we get a lot of downloads for even today. Oh, that's like, great. People keep going back to it's that a great one. episode. Uh, they go back to all of them, but but that one in particular, it's like yeah. there are always these yeah, spikes. We need to it. have Logan back. I agree. Together again for the first time. Yeah. Uh, uh, so let's let's talk let's talk about this selfies? monkey selfie. Yeah, so we got this great. Well, you you tell you tell it as the IP person. What's what's going on in this? I mean, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I love this selfie so much. I love this picture. It is a great. Um, it's a great image. Now, what what is it about it that you want to talk about? Because we could talk about so many different things about it. We could talk about selfies in general. We could. No. So describe. You want to describe the picture. Well, uh, there are actually two that I could describe, and that's and thereby hangs a tale, right? So the image, um, I think the original image shows the face of the uh, monkey, I think it was a macaque, um, at an angle. Uh, there are also versions of the image that show the face upright and centered. Uh, and one of the debates going on, so, so it seems like the thing people want to talk about is who owns the copyright in the photo? 
assuming there is a copyright in the photo, um, uh, who owns it? So that's really two questions. Is there a copyright in the photo uh, or is it instead in the public domain? Uh, Not owned by anybody, meaning meaning therefore that anyone can reproduce it. So Wikimedia can, without getting anyone else's consent, put it on its... And that, that's how this came up. Because that's, that's how the dispute has arisen right. between the person whose camera the macaque used to produce the photo. Um, at, that person is saying that Wikimedia should not make the photo available publicly without its permission. Wikimedia is telling that person to go pound sand um, because <laughs> it says there is no copyright owned by anybody in this photo. Well, let's talk about how the photo was made. So the photo, from the, according to the news reports... Um, the photo occurred when this uh, photographer was in Indonesia. So Indonesian law may be applicable. Uh, was in Indonesia. The macaque grabbed the camera uh, against the intention of the photographer. Right. And started playing with it uh, and produced, therefore, in playing with it, photos. And I, I understand that there were, and I don't know if it was just that one um, monkey or if it was a bunch of or if there were others, but I think there are a lot of photographs made. A lot of them are not good. Sure. But this one, um, he's looking square into the camera. I mean, it's off at an angle, but it's square into the camera with a with a great grin, a big smile. It's a beautiful photo. It's unbelievable. It's an unbelievable photo, and that's why. And it's clearly a very valuable photo because this is right. made by a non human animal, right? Yes, and and uh, importantly, I think. Um, made against the intention of the camera owner. I, I think that's important as a matter of copyright law. Uh, and it's also important in the wider debate. So for existing is so earlier today I was listening to the Slate Political Gab Fest uh, podcast for this week. Yeah. And they have a, a thing at the end of the show every home, week. Home a friend of the show, Dolly Lithwick. Yes. Yeah. Um, the Political Gab Fest um, uh, has a thing at the end that they call cocktail chatter. And the thing that David Plotz was cocktail chattering about was the monkey selfie. By the way, we need a cocktail chatter portion. Does it involve actual cocktails? <laughs> no, okay. I, but amen, brother. Okay. Um, and, um, and so Emily Bazelon, in the middle of this discussion on the political gap fest, m- mistakenly uh, describes it as an event that the photographer contrived. That the right. photographer who owned the camera actually set the whole thing up. And in a sense, in that scenario, which is not true, right? That's not what the news reports indicate. In that scenario, that non-true scenario, you could make the argument that the monkey is essentially the photographer's instrumentality, right. much as the camera itself is, right? Well, that, much as the photographer's parents are. Like, but for the photographer's parents, no, 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 there no, 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 no I'm making a very different argument. It's not a but-for cause. It's an instrumentality. You're actually, you, like, you would use a paintbrush to paint a painting, Right. You're using the macaque to create the macaque photo. Yeah, but the photographers' parents are using the new being they created to go to Indonesia to be, acquire photography skills to put a camera in. Okay, in, right? no, I see your point. Right? If it, I mean, and if they really wanted to tell a story where they could, where that was all a matter of their intentional contrivance, then I suppose you're right. Analogically, it would have the same. The well, argument would have the same structure. Well, that's, my my point is that an instrumentality argument 
necessarily is a kind of causation argument. We're going to have to figure out where in the chain. Indeed, you will have that issue. You will undoubtedly have that issue. Um, But that assumes that it was all a matter of intentional contrivance. This, the the facts as they've been reported, suggest that's not true at all, right? That it was contrary to his intention that the macaque grabbed the camera. So the photo was made. The photo was without made. the photographer's right. contrivance in any way, and 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 people love it. Wikipedia wants to someone puts it up on Wikipedia, and I guess he tries to take it down. Right, the photographer yeah, they tries want to take it, it down. He wants it gone because he wants to commercialize it. Right. They talk to their lawyers, and they said, "You don't own the copyright in this." Right. Maybe the monkey does. They say, which Maybe is not. and actually they didn't say that. Press reports have said they said that. They never said that. No, they, they never made that claim. I don't believe they did. Mm-hmm. Um, one could, I think foolishly um, <laughs> suggest that the monkey owns the, the copyright uh, that's crazy okay? uh, the monkey's not a person uh, and in our legal system for better or for worse uh, the only things that own things are persons uh, including the legal persons of cor- called corporations monkeys don't own things can, can, yeah but can i can i just make a very quick argument as an aside uh, that would say there should be no copyright in the monkey even if you were to take the animal rights position that animals should have standing to raise some legal claims um, okay. Yeah, there assume, are people who make that argument. Okay, fine. Yeah. Assume the, the the assume it were in the United States, not Indonesia. Right. And assume that the macaque was treated as a, a person for some purposes under the law. Right. So you could uh, you could maintain a suit in 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 a monkey uh, in a, in a cruel like in a tort situation if they're being tortured or there's some other thing. Right. Uh, instead of having other people sue on their behalf or under some statute, you could imagine a regime which says we're going to recognize at least in. Uh, and there are people who have written about this, and some people I want to get on the show actually have written about this kind of thing, uh, that, that we should recognize standing in animals to vindicate their own interests because they yes. are thinking they are thinking animals and they can suffer, and et cetera. Yeah. So imagine quite, we quite have that view. compelling arguments. Yes, and we have, let's suppose we have that view. Um, you would still say, well, should they be able to maintain a copyright? And if you think, if you have the Sonny Bono conception of copyright, which is m- more along the lines of the transcendental nonsense that we uh, were just right. talking about in our last discussion, you might think, well, maybe so, because property is a natural right of anybody who creates anything. And now that argument is, I think, BS on all sorts of for all sorts of reasons. Maybe we'll get into it. Maybe we won't. But if you instead you think that copyright is there to encourage people to add to the public domain by giving them a time, you know, in other words, we're gonna we're gonna just absorb this cost of a, as a society of giving you a monopoly right in this thing that you create because in time the public domain will be enriched by the thing you created right. we're giving you this incentive to create right. uh with a time limited right right uh as a way to give you a commercial leg up for right. a period um therefore uh you as a human who can be encouraged to create right. in this way right. we incent in this way exactly so you wouldn't give it to the monkey because the monkey can't be encouraged in this way it, it's unlikely that you could explain to the monkey the potential rewards for making uh good pictures right it probably um, and doesn't... the monkey saying well i'm not going to engage in leisure when uh, i could be out making some making some dough right or or contrary wise well i was going to go take those pictures or paint those paintings but i'm not going to bother because <laughs> right. if i do someone will just reproduce <laughs> right. them and uh, and I won't get my my return on investment. So instead, I'll the sit here old, and eat a banana and masturbate. The, the, this is a family show, Joe. I, well, but this is the age old macaque free rider problem. It's a what? The age old macaque free rider problem. Indeed, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> so it's that's the sense in which even if you have a strong animal rights, animal yep. standing argument, you would still say we shouldn't recognize copyrights. Now, in, here's the argument for recognizing a copyright. Oh, here we go. Um, is that what did the photographer do? 
This is in the photographer. This is the argument. Correct. This would be for recognizing a copyright owned by the photographer. Okay. Now, my, my own conclusion is, as a, as a doctrinal matter, from what I know of, of American law to a certainty, and what I know about UK and Indonesian law to the degree that they are quite like US copyright law in this respect, and apparently they are, um, as a doctrinal matter, there is no argument uh, that the photo represents the originality of the photographer. And therefore, the photographer isn't the creator of that work for copyright law purposes. Equally clearly, the macaque isn't a person and can't have the kind of creativity the law requires. So the, there is no copyright in anybody. The photo is in the public domain. You think people are, 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 are urging are led to conclude that, well, there's, there's a copyright. The problem is who owns it. Because we think that anytime there's a computer yes, file or anything out in the world, there has to be an great, owner. And Mike Masnick at TechDirt has this amazing post of yesterday, and I think it nails it exactly right, is the real tragedy of this, to the way in which this story is not good, not fun. Uh, the, the way it's good and fun is the beautiful macaque picture. Because it's great. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's a beautiful photo. I love the smile. It's beautiful. So that's great. Here's what's not great. Yeah. Everyone thinking this has to be owned by somebody, which really shows the way that um, content producers, uh, to use a somewhat ugly phrase, content producers have impoverished us in our conception of thinking about culture. Because we think now that things have to be owned by somebody. Right. Rather than thinking that, no, there's an ecosystem where there's a public domain of things that, is, that are not owned by anybody and, uh, and things that are owned by people. Some things are in one place, some things are in the other. Um, and, uh, and a healthy public domain is a vital part of our culture and all those right. things. We've been taught not to think that way. You True. have to be convinced. So, and it's so sad to me in the political gap fest where they, where they, they have this very event, right? They were, Emily Bazelon and David Plotz and uh, uh, John Dickerson sitting there going, well, you know, of course, it has to be owned by somebody. So I guess it's the photographer. And you think it's we, so deflated. So we've been conditioned by FBI warnings and takedown notices and Napster uh, lawsuits to think that, like, everything that people produce is owned. And the only things that are not owned are really, really old things. Yeah. And so, so we look at it and we say, well, if there's value, uh, there must be a right to exclude. If and, value, then right. And, and it's an incredibly impoverished way to think, in and of my course, opinion. The, the, the movement, and this was, you know, and we go back to Elder versus Ashcroft, the, yeah. the uh, Larry Lessig's lawsuit to try to invalidate the lengthening of copyright terms, and especially to subsisting owners, but potentially raising the issue of invalidating extension altogether. Right. Um, uh, you know, go, going back to that, th- trying to internalize. It's one thing to to make these arguments, but it's another thing to feel it, right, and to and to understand in your bones, right, that the reason we have ownership at all, that ownership is a word for just a bundle of claims, and you can take that or not, but that the reason we do this at all is to increase the public domain. It's to get more stuff. We want more stuff. We're worried if we don't give you this special legal status, you won't produce the stuff. Right. And so what's the right answer to when to give that special legal status? It's when, if we don't do it, we won't get the stuff, right? right. So it's when... As I've heard you say before, right, that the reason to give a monopoly or some other kind of special status is to make sure goods are provided, which otherwise might be underprovided. And do we think that, in this case, 
And, 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 and look, you may have to give monopoly status in situations where the person would have done it anyway very clearly because there's no good legal way to distinguish, right? right. So you're going to have to create... Too hard to tell. You're going to have to create lumpy categories of things which right. get the monopoly status and, and, and that don't. There'll, but, there'll be some over-inclusion on under-inclusion. Right. It happens. But we can... But you don't necessarily need to include in the, stati- in the category things which are owned things which works of art which are created by people other than the person claiming the copyright right and especially <laughs> ones created by monkeys or created you know right. now, the, I, would imagine, I would imagine the strongest argument could be and i don't think it's a the a strongest argument case, for what for for the photographer okay would be that that is it he i keep saying he because i think i've read in no, i believe the photographer is a male yes. yeah i think uh, that, that he created the conditions of this photograph and intended to cre- intended to get Photographs like this. In other words, you can imagine someone who goes uh, out. And t- I don't think that's at all the strongest. Well, argument. well, but you, but could we imagine a situation where a photographer and, takes and a bunch know- of cameras, which are specially adapted to macaque hands or whatever? Oh yeah, you could them construct around. a hypo. You could construct a hypo yeah. where where the product, the photograph, the photograph was the product of lots of deliberate acts on the photographer's part to set up the conditions which would produce the photograph and to encourage those sorts of just those sorts of investments. You would not want their fruits to be copyable immediately by everybody. What's the answer to this, Joe, as an IP expert? Suppose I'm a photographer. But that's not what happened. I know, I know. know, And it's not the good argument for a copyright in this context, which I have not yet provided, but which I would if I had the time. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Well, I'm just wondering what role fortuity plays here. So I'm I'm trying to imagine situations which don't involve fortuity and seeing if we we still have an argument. So uh, imagine I'm an artist and I want to produce something called Kid's Birthday Party. Okay, kid's birthday party, and I get a lot of cheap throwaway cameras to get a kind of vintage look, and I just scatter them around a kid's birthday party, and the kids pick them up and take photographs, and my work of art is just verbatim taking these photographs, verbatim, but you know what I mean, like just taking the photographs and just posting them. Okay. No manipulation. You, know, you can imagine I take those and then I create some kind of you know, right, yeah, collage understood. and everything. Yeah. Would the artist have copyright in that? No, I think the, um, well, I, I think the, the kids do. If, if yeah. they did, it, if the if they did, it would only be by virtue of a work made for hire sort of argument. Uh, I think the children would be the photographers. They would be the ones who made the choice about what to take as a picture, and therefore they would own the copyright in the first instance. And perhaps it, it would be that under oper- again, this is assuming we're using the United States law. Uh, the way you would talk about it is you would say, well, okay, is there a work made for hire arrangement between you and the kids at the party such that their copyright interest would vest in you uh, in under the work made for hire rules that we that's, have? Yes yeah, or no, right? But you wouldn't, it wouldn't be, no, I don't, I think you would but think But that of, seems too, doc- I, I don't, what, what bothers me about that is I can uh, that I can imagine. You asked me as an IP expert. I know. So to I criticize d- my answer on the ground that it's too doctrinal not, is a bit. I'm odd. not criticizing you. I'm criticizing the uh, the way the doctrine sorts through that. If that's you know, uh, so your answer is probably is surely accurate. I'm 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 wondering if that's the right approach, and because I can see an artist thinking that. Of, of a new way to capture an idea, which is what we want to incentivize. Instead of sitting on your bomb watching TV, right. we want you to do this. Well, the other argument you could make is that you're co-authors. What yeah. I don't think you'd be able to do under the law is to oust entirely the child's interest as the person who actually took the photo. What about these people who fa- who, who uh, attach a... Um, and I wish I were one of these people. Let me just flat out say this. Who attaches a uh, a, a camera to a great white shark... 
which then swims the <laughs> ocean. You've, you've seen these before. You know, this is increasingly a thing, and it's awesome. Like, right? Like go, a GoPro or something yeah, yeah, like that. or well, or the you know something like that. Yeah. Um, and it's triggered. And imagine though that there's some additional algorithm which it triggers to take a picture every time there's a certain depth reached. Right. Okay. So, what do you think? Uh, um, I think what I would do and what you should do and what anyone should do who wants to think more about this, they should go read the stuff that's being written by a professor named Anne-Marie Bridie. That's B-R-I-D-Y, Anne-Marie Bridie. Boom, it's in the show She's notes. at University of Idaho Law School. Mm-hmm. And she's been thinking about this issue and, and all sorts of terrific variants on it uh, in all of its complexity. And it's a, And I think the way you think about it is with roughly is you think – about that question of instrumentality, as you put it before, drawing that line around, you know, when has it become too attenuated? Right. Um, to think of our, our whole model is the who's the author and what does it mean to author something? And so the authoring of making choices that are reflected in the work, right? Right. Um, choices like I'll snap the photo now instead of before or after now. Yeah. I'll, I'll look at it this angle instead of that other angle. I'll be on this side of the room instead of that side of the room, right? Yeah. All those are choices that an author, in this instance, a photographer makes, right? And to return to the macaque story, just to yeah. wrap it up, because we're going very long. Um, here's the best argument, I think, that the person who owned that camera could make for a copyright interest. Um, and and it's not one that our law would do a very good job recognizing doctrinally right now. But the argument would be something like this. Okay, how do you all know about the photo? You know because I shared it. I didn't just delete it. Uh, I In fact, I not only shared it, I first took it, turned the face up correctly, cropped it. Uh, and so what is my argument for owning an interest? My argument for owning an interest is for you to incent distribution. Not just creation, but distribution of a cre- of a thing created. So fine, the macaque created, and I'm not the author in that sense. But I'm the distributor author, right? I'm the person that you want to encourage to sort of sift through all the detritus and come up with the good thing, right? And so with your approach, I'm not going to do that anymore. Because I'm not going to reap the return of going through, figuring out if this is a good photo, figuring out if I tilt it this way and crop it this way, it makes it the best photo it could be, and then sharing it with the world in this way, because you all just swooped in and stole it. Because no one posts pictures of the internet unless they get paid. (laughs) I'm saying this is the argument, right? You would say you want an incentive system. I hear that that it's an argument. You want an incentive system to encourage someone to do something that is an important cause. The the copyright system traditionally focuses on the cause known as authorship. And the other thing you could focus on, either in addition to or instead of authorship, is distributorship. And the the investments and risks that go into that. We're going to wrap it up. But but distributorship is... Cheap these days. It, right. Well, this is great, right? So, of course, you immediately, when you want to talk about distributorship, you would want to talk about things like risk, cost, etc. Like you would in any incentive system creation, right? You'd want to talk about, well, what kind of benefit am I giving you to get what in exchange? Yeah. Is that a needed benefit given the cost? Because the cost is the deadweight loss of your exclusive right in this period of time when it's you're you're charging a price above marginal cost, blah blah blah. Yeah, you have of course you have all that discussion. But what gets him in the game is to say that copyright is at least as much about distributorship 
incentives as authorship incentives. Now, our law right now doesn't do a good job with that separate from authorship. It and makes the author a proxy for, or it, it just simply puts within authorship, it puts in distributorship. And, right? and whether or not that's, I mean, yeah, I, so we got to end, but um, the right answer is that we should not use uh, copyright law to encourage distributing without authoring. Okay. That's the right answer. And and You accept that, Joe, right? I do. Yeah. I, I think um, the... the uh, while it may frustrate this particular person who maybe shared the photo on the mistaken belief that copyright law would protect his right to refuse permission to people who wanted to use it in some other way, right? Um, uh, I think the amount of creative output we would lose in the public domain uh, for people who say, well, you know, I would have shared it, but mm, I'm not going to because the law doesn't give me a right to exclude. I think that's uh, kind of farcical at this right. point. Given the given the ubiquity of digital photography equipment and the extremely low cost of distribution. All right. I got to eat. Okay. Let's wind it up. Bye, Joe.